The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me, the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be picking up pretty much where we left off on last week. We're in a context that I have kind of divided and subdivided in different ways throughout the times that I've been able to study this. I've made a slight adjustment even tonight, but basically we're looking at Mark chapter 2 verses 23 through 28, but we're going to be conjoining it very tightly with what is said in Mark chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. So the broader context, Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3 and verse 6 is what we're looking at this evening. We did quite a bit of discussion last week already, I know, from verses 23 to 25, uh, just to back up and reread that so we get where we need to be. Verse 23, chapter 2 of Mark says this, And it came to pass that when he, that is Jesus, went into the cornfields on the Sabbath day, that his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he, again that is Jesus, said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and when he was hungered, and how that they that were with him, and that they went in the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful to them to eat, but for the priest, and gave them to, and, and also to them which were with him. And so we've seen already what the accusation is basically, and that was just simply that they're doing something that is going against the Sabbath, basically. And I noticed a number of times the last couple of days I was kind of re-looking through this, examining some things, and one of the things I picked up on very quickly is that so many of the attacks that Jesus was placed under from the Pharisees, others like them, the scribes, of course, listed kind of one and the same there. So many of them came up not because of what he actually did, but because of the time in which he did it. And that was on the Sabbath day. And so uh, just in searching, and you can do this on your own, uh, if you, especially if you've got an electronic device, you can look up just the word Sabbath. And you can see hundreds of times, I think there are 116 times that are listed where the Sabbath is spoken of. Of course, many of those in the Old Testament was just laying out the command of the Sabbath. And I did say command. We'll be careful of that later. But laying out the command of the Sabbath. But once you get over the New Testament, nearly every time it is listed, unless it's just listed as a way of putting time on something or kind of giving a dating to something, which John does quite a bit of that in his gospel account, it's really mentioned as being negative toward Jesus and what he chose to do on the Sabbath day. So that's really what the attack is all about. Now, just a couple of questions for us to kind of go over in our minds. We're not trying to answer with our mouths necessarily, but do you expect as a Christian to at times be persecuted? I would just nod to that at least. I would expect at times to be persecuted. Do you expect as a Christian at times at least sometimes, to be tested by those that are around you. Obviously by that, I mean that those that are non-Christians. Would they oftentimes test you? Yes. Would they oftentimes put you on trial for living right? Yes, of course. How do you deal with that? How do you answer that? I think my impulse is always, if someone comes at me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to give them an answer for that. Now hopefully I can do that in a, in a kind and loving manner. Hopefully I can do that in a proper manner. But a lot of times I look at that and I say, well, if they're going to test me or try me, I've got to give them reason behind which uh, everything that I'm doing. 
And there's a point and there's an extent where we are to, quote, give answer to those that ask. Recognize that part of the scripture there from 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Be ready always to give an answer, a defense of the reason and hope that was in you with meekness and fear. Yes, there's that. And actually the context there of 1 Peter 3 and 15 goes back up through the beginning of that chapter and a little bit in the chapter preceding that. And it has to do with those who persecute us. But the more I've thought about that, it's not just the fact that we're giving an answer for ourselves. We might say that we're giving that defense for ourselves. Who else are we defending? God in one sense. Yes, absolutely. But here's a greater question. Who would God be willing to defend? Us. And so I think it kind of comes out here in this context what happens when they come at Jesus and particularly they begin to make accusation against his disciple. Jesus doesn't turn to any of those disciples and say, well, you heard what they said. How are we going to answer that? Jesus turns around himself and gives the answer. And so the way that we in turn can answer those things is obviously we're going to reference our Lord in that. We're going to turn someone to Scripture and say, well, we do this because, not because we're greater than you or better than you, but we do this because this is the example that is set forth or the command that is laid out in Scripture. But we give answers by that means. And so to say that is to say we don't stand alone in that. Now, as we were kind of looking at these accusations last week, there were several accusations that could have come up according to the way that they would spend the Sabbath day, the things that they would consider need to be done on the Sabbath day that could have stuck against these disciples, one of which was the fact it was apparent to some extent, now we don't know what extent, but to some extent they were traveling. We brought that out, we discussed that a little bit. There was also the accusation against them to some extent that they could be accused of harvesting on that day because they were plucking those ears of grain, those corn, what have you. And there was also the accusation that they likewise on the Sabbath day were, were preparing a meal. And I know that's far stretched, but as they were rubbing those things through their hands and sifting through that, they could have been accused of that and a number of other things. But it stood out to me today that the only accusation they really brought up against these disciples were just that which were pinned to that doing on the Sabbath day. And it stood out that they did not, even though that implication could have been made, they did not call out on his disciples for that travel. Why would they not turn to those disciples and say, look, they have no business harvesting today. They have no business trying to prepare food. They have no business doing this and so, and they have no business traveling. Why did these men not say that? Just, just supposition. It's, it's in this context, but it's actually revealed more when we get into chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 to 6. But the fact is, they were following him anyway. <laughs> So wherever, wherever Jesus and his disciples were going, whatever limit of travel they were imparting, these Pharisees were right there and behind him anyway. And so the accusation, again, that they bring out there is, why are your disciples doing that which is, and you need to have this underlined if it's not already, doing, not, not doing that which is lawful on the Sabbath day. So they're looking at the lawful things. They're not talking about the law. They're talking really about the law that they had adhered to. Now, as we looked last week, we looked at the parallel. Jesus' answer right here, verse 25 says, Have you not read that when David, when he did, when he had need and he was hungered, that he and that were with him went in the house of 
of God and Abithar and the high priest and did eat the showbread which was not lawful to eat, but the priest that gave him also that which were with him. And we looked over at the example, and I hope you'll turn back to it. Go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's where we were taking view of this actual account, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 21, it really picks up in verse 1, as a matter of fact, and it goes on through at least verse 6 or so. But we have that encounter where David actually did what Jesus said he did. David did go to the priest. He did ask those of the house of Abithar. In this case, it is listed in the Old Testament context, at least, of being Ahimelech. But they did go unto the priest, and he did ask him a bread. And the priest did answer him, We don't have any common bread for you, but we only have that which is holy, which is ultimately the showbread. He says in verse 4, just to read that specific part of this, And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but that which is hallowed, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Of a truth, the women have been kept from about three days, and since I have came into the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread in that matter is common, yet if it were sanctified in that day in the vessel. And the priest gave him the hollowed bread, and there was no bread there but the showbread, the bread of presence, and that which was taken before the Lord. And he put hot bread in that day, and it was taken away. And so when David goes into the tabernacle, if you will, or to the priest, he doesn't go in there to steal bread, does he? Not what he does. He actually asked permission of the man of God to give him bread. Who gave him the bread? The priest did so. Now, our, kind of the way we ended on last week was just wondering if that priest had the authority to do that. Just, this is a what do you think? Do you think that priest had the authority to give David this bread? I don't think he would have done it if he didn't have the authority. I would assume he would not have done it had he not had the authority. Now you have to kind of understand what's happening here. We've got the quote show bread, the bread of presence. I mentioned on last week there were 12 loaves of that bread that were laying there on the table of the show bread. There were 12 loaves of those. Those loaves of bread estimated to weigh somewhere around 12 pounds each. I don't know if that really matters other than it's much larger than I once imagined it to be. But when he gives him what he asked for, he does so because he has some level of ability to do that. Now, the way the showbread worked out is that it was replaced every Sabbath day. Basically, new loaves were baked, new loaves were put out. The old loaves were intended to be eaten by whom? The context tells us both here and in Mark intend to be eaten by the priest. They cooked it on the day before that and put it and presented it there on the Sabbath day. But, but now as a side note, on the Sabbath day, the priest did more work than everybody else. Did they not? As a matter of fact, the Sabbath day it was the day where the priest did the majority, or at least a, a larger majority of their work. And so when God commanded men, in general, the children of Israel, to rest on the Sabbath day, and specifically, by the way, the only command He ever gave concerning that specifically was that they rest from their work or from their labors, the priests worked their hardest day on that day. Not just involving in the presenting of the showbread, which they did, but also in all their sacrifices. And that, by the way, there were... Uh, very um, 
strategic, if you will, or very certain things that they did, offerings that they made, sacrifices they made on the Sabbath day. So they're working on that day. But this bread that David receives, it is likely was the bread that possibly would have either, as it should have been, eaten by then and or thrown out and being replaced. Assuming he's there sometime around the Sabbath day. Now, uh, we look at that and we think about that and we say, well, first of all, he was the priest. He was the high priest. He had some level of authority there that was given by God. He shares those bread or that bread with David and his cohorts or his uh, men, mighty men that were with him and such. But it does still mention, verse 6, that priest gave him that hollow bread, for there was no bread there but that showbread. And it had taken from before him the Lord, that hot bread in that day when he had taken it. So why would the priest make that decision? Now, uh, someone pointed this out to me last week, and I'm just asking you to look into it as well. That's in chapter 21. Look over into chapter 22. Abby uh, found this. Look into chapter 22 and verse 13. Right across the page for me. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me and the son of Jesse? Now who's the son of Jesse he's referencing here? David. David. And the son of Jesse, in that you have given him the bread and the sword, and thou hast inquired of him of God that he should rise against me to lie in wait on this day. So by chapter 22, what relationship does this priest still remain and have with God? He's still got a good relationship. And it's, it seems that he inquired of the things that he did, therefore in some senses had permission. But back over in our context, are these men arguing literally about what God says about the Sabbath day? No. Their arguments are still coming down to the fact of what they believe the Sabbath day went. Now, we went through a number of things last week just by example that they were allowed versus not allowed to do on the Sabbath day. Remember some of those, they were allowed supposedly to tie a knot so long as they could do it with one hand. They were allowed supposedly to go 1,199 paces so long as they didn't go 2,000. They could only travel that limited distance. They were allowed to, uh, I, I came across this one today, it was interesting. They were only allowed to pick up something if it weighed less than a dry fig. I, I'd picture a raisin. Is that about what I should be picturing there? If, as long as it laid, weighed less than that. Women were likewise not allowed to wear jewelry on the Sabbath day. Now, these are not, these are not laws you find in the Bible. These are laws that have been applied, that have been given over by uh, these pharisaical types, but they were not aware, allowed to wear jewelry on the same day for the same reason, if it weighed more than the, that of a fig. They were not allowed, and it's exactly what Jesus' disciples supposedly had done, not just according to this account, but when you look at the parallel in uh, Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, they were not allowed to do any labor, even down to the point of not being able to, as they said, Matthew said they did it, they rubbed this grain between their fingers, which in the law of the Pharisees implied they were harvesting one, they were winnowing on another. They were doing so much that was supposedly against these laws. But they said again, Behold, why they do on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful. Jesus' example was, look here what happened. Your man David, 
who you consider most likely to be so great, he came in to the priest and came and approached the tabernacle and he ate the showbread, which what did Jesus say? Was not lawful. Is Jesus right? Of course he's right. And so even if they had been right, and I'm giving them way too much credit for that, but even if they had been right, Jesus' argument, if they had been right, if they had been right, was to them, look, am I any greater or lesser than David? Can my disciples not do what David did? Why did David go and get those loaves of the, the bread of presence, the showbread? Why did he do that? Because he and his men were hungered. Why, is, why are Jesus' disciples pausing in these fields or at the edges of these fields and taking that grain? Because they're hungry. God's laws, and it's what the argument comes up to being ultimately, God's laws that he has concerning the Sabbath or any other day, Old Testament would have been more the Sabbath, were never intended to harm a man. I read a number of commentaries, and I don't know, they probably all stole one from the other from the other. I mean, they can pick up a book or look something up just as well as we can. But so many of them expressed this by saying the Sabbath day was not supposed to be a burden, but a blessing. That, that's a relatively decent quote, I thought. It was not supposed to be a burden, but a blessing. When the Sabbath day was instituted, if you will, by God, what was God's commandment toward that day? Go to Genesis chapter 2. Yes, sir. Keep it holy. Keep it holy. There's a direct command about that. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. A lot of times we think about it, or at least I have in the past for sure, perhaps you, but I think about the Sabbath day, and although I know, yes, God rested in the heavens, that's kind of the way we read it and we sing the song to go along with that, on the sixth day God rested in the heavens and all. The Sabbath day was considered holy before uh, the Ten Commandments came down. When the Ten Commandments begin to be listed in Exodus chapter 20, what are one of the commandments that comes up right there? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I thought that through and I thought, you know, God is never accidental in what He says. God said to keep that Sabbath day holy. Meaning or implying that that Sabbath day has been holy since some point and all you're supposed to be doing is holding to that, keeping that. Look in Genesis chapter 2. In verse uh, 1 beginning. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and rested on the Sabbath day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified, that is set apart it, because in that he had rested from all of his work and God created, which God had created and made. So God made that Sabbath day blessed. God implied for that Sabbath day to be sanctified, to be set apart. And it was ordered for them to do what? To rest from their labors. That's what God said about the Sabbath day. Now, whatever else we can understand or imply from, from this accusation, again, many of the times, many, many of the times that Jesus is attacked 
by the Pharisees. It really comes back to something they supposedly did against the Sabbath day. And short of Jesus being in the field laboring and working and toiling, he had not broke the Sabbath day law in doing what he did. If Jesus had walked 10 miles and paused there in this field and rubbed some corn between his fingers or his disciples done the same and partook of that, that would not have been breaking God's law as far as them resting from their work, from their labor. Now, he went into Martha the priest had gave him the bread. That's one of the key words here as well as what you find in the text. And Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing to these people and not a burden. On the Sabbath day, resting from their labors helped out, first of all, the person, the worker themselves, right? I mean, how many of you, probably plenty of us at one time or another, at least for periods of time, how many, of you, how many of you have ever been asked to work or maybe had to work seven days of the week? Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Is that difficult? Does that take a toll? Obviously, physically it does, certainly. And at some point, what do you do in your mind? At least if you find yourself having an option, what do you say? I'm done with that. I can't, I can't work. I can't work all. I can't work seven days a week. I don't have time for anything else. The men got to rest from their labors by keeping the Sabbath, particularly in the Old Testament. The animals got to rest from their labors. You know, believe it or not, that oxen didn't want to work as, even as much as those men did because he had no idea why he was doing it. The, the actual fields got rest from, the, from their producing of the fruits and the grains or what have Every bit of this was for their rest. And so Jesus says the Sabbath was intended or meant, made for men and not man for the Sabbath. And then look at what he tells them. Therefore, what does that word imply? We say this over and over. Because of what I just said, verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I would imply that when Jesus, as we have it listed in verse 25, when he looked at these men of the law, these experts of the law that is centered so much of what they did in life around what they believed to be required of them, owner of the Sabbath. When he looked at those men and said, have you not read? You think that got under skin? I just assume it may have. Have you not read? Don't you know the law? Don't you know about the time when David went into the tabernacle and took of the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? Don't you know about that? That probably got under their skin pretty good. But I'm going to assume something got under their skin, if you want to, that's using very loose terms there, under their skin, quite a bit more, and that was him saying what? The Son of Man's a Lord of the Sabbath. Is that Jesus proving his authority? I think to a huge extent it is. To a really big extent. 
That proves his authority. That proves in some senses or could prove his actions if he had been wrong in such. And I don't believe for a, a, a gnat's eyelash he was ever wrong in what they did. Never were his disciples wrong in that they just simply took a few steps into a field and, and rubbed some grain between their fingers to eat. Because the Sabbath day was not intended to hurt or harm anyone. You know, we said one of the things they could not do according to these men's laws on the Sabbath day was that if someone got injured, unless it was a, a dire straight, a life or death situation, they couldn't even assist them. They couldn't help them. You fall and break your leg, what happens until uh, Saturday at 6 p.m.? You know, when Friday, basically in our days, Friday from 6 p.m. to Saturday, 6 p.m., what happened to that man with a broken leg? They wouldn't touch him. Wouldn't do anything to help him. So Jesus, in one sense, is proving his authority by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There's another thing he proves, though. He proves more than that, he's his equality. That meant Jesus said he was who? God. You know, he even gives them a reference in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 21, the way that we read it, 1 to 6. But he gives them a reference to David. But by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, is he pointing back to Exodus 20? He's pointing back to what we just read in Genesis chapter 2. He's letting them know, I was there. I was present. Now remember, Mark's gospel starts out quite a bit different. We'll just reread Mark 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was... the. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? Son of God. You're familiar with John's gospel. How does God, how does uh, John introduce Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, it was with God. So when Jesus tells them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's speaking on authority, authoritative stands, but he's also speaking on a qualitative stands. I'm putting myself together with them. Now watch how this bears out, and that's why I continue to say we tie it into chapter 3. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it because I can't. I'm going to mark through the, the two words that are in my Bible, chapter 3. Just mark through them. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man which had a withered hand, and they, what's that next word? Watched him. That is, they carefully watched him. And the implication is there in the wording that they continually and carefully watched him. Jesus couldn't do anything without these men seeing it. They were ever present with him. And they watched him whether he would, what's that next phrase? Underline it. Heal on the Sabbath. I just went through a, a number of times. It took me a few minutes today, but I just went through all the times in Mark's gospel. I could have done the others, but I didn't, I didn't take the time for it. But you just go through the gospel of Mark and look at how many times the Sabbath, 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 is listed in conjunction with an attack that's made on Jesus. So they watched him, not to see necessarily what he would do, but what he would do when he would do it. He entered into the synagogue there. There was a man with his hand. They watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Again, what would they have done with that man? If they could have done anything, it wouldn't have been done on the Sabbath day. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Why? That they might accuse 
him. They really wanted to accuse him. And he, verse 3, that is Jesus, said unto the man, which had the withered hand, stand forth. I've got that actually boxed in. And I tell you, sometimes I underline and I circle. I've got that boxed in. Jesus didn't hide. He didn't, he didn't go whisper in this man's ear and say, if you'll meet me out back in a little bit, I can help. He says, stand up. This man is getting in the middle in some senses. This man here with a withered hand is getting in the middle of a direct argument between the Pharisees and Jesus. Would you assume that's a comfortable place to be? The Pharisees have already, preceding chapter, made attack on Jesus. Jesus comes back in the synagogue again. They follow him intentionally to accuse him, as Scripture states. He tells them, stand forth. And he said to them, it is, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save a life or to kill it? And they answered, Lord, let us tell you the truth. What the God of the Sabbath told us. Let us tell you the truth what we know. Is that what they did? Couldn't say a word. Is it good to do good? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? Meaning, if I were to heal this man, which we know in the context he will, if I'm going to heal this man on the Sabbath day, can I do that because that is good? If you do your best, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but if you or I, if we do our best to serve God in every way that we can, in our hearts and even outwardly as we go out about the world in public or whatever, what oftentimes is accused on us for just doing what God asks? You think you're better than me. I don't think anybody said this in the last 20 years. None of my kids have, but you goody two-shoes, what's, what's wrong with you? Jesus says, is it good to do good? Basically he's saying, do you have a problem with someone doing good on the Sabbath day? How would they argue that? Is it better to, to have a man to, be, to, to live on the Sabbath day or to die? Is it better to save him or to kill him? And when he looked around about on them, mark these two words, with anger... Keyword, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith, unto the, he, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth straightway to spread the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ and the great works that he did. What's verse 6 say? They went forth straightway immediately and took counsel with the Herodians. That's a whole other topic. Very interesting. But with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. You do good on the Sabbath day, we'll kill you for it. That was their answer. 
They didn't, they didn't vocalize anything. But they actionalized, if that's a real word, it sounded good. They actionalized, put action behind trying to conspire to kill him. So Jesus was angry, being grieved. Now this is not the typical word, the original word at least, is not the typical traditional word for just anger. This is a word which implies that Jesus was just overflowing. Just, I would, I would, I'm not saying this is the literal meaning of it, but it's as if Jesus is beginning to shake. You ever gotten so mad that your heart pounds and, and your voice starts to quiver if you try to speak? And you're, and you're certain if you're trying to do right that if you do speak, it's not going to go well? But that's not all he was. He wasn't just angered. He was also grieved. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. He said, you're so hard that one, you would bring accusation about me and my disciple for just trying to keep from being hungry. That's all we did. We just ate a bite. But you're so much harder than that. When a man stands before you and he said he stood forth with a withered hand, you will not even help him. And if you, if you could, you don't want anybody else to help him either. Now here's something I would insert in that. We're in Mark chapter 3. Go with me to John chapter 5. That'd be turning to the right, even though I went to the left. Go with me to John chapter 5. John is a lot more chronological than Mark. Now, I'm not saying that Mark necessarily just is, you know, willy-nilly about the way he throws things in, but John is actually one of those standards that we can use to follow the movements of Jesus because when John delivers his, his gospel account, he's very specific, and at times he lists, he lists out Sabbath days, he lists feasts, particularly several different feasts, the Passover being one of those main ones. He lists out a number of things that put things in time perspective and kind of chronologically puts in order the things that Jesus did. Now this is what happened that Mark does not even talk about in this case, not to this point, but this is actually what happened prior to him healing this man with a withered hand. So you've got him in Mark chapter 2, beginning in or chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, healing the man with a withered hand. This is what happened right prior to that. Chapter 5 of John. And after there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up in Jerusalem. Now he was in Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool which is called in Hebrew word Bethesda, having five porches. Five, three. And they lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And when the angel went down as a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, whosoever first, after the troubling of the water, was stepped in, was made whole, whatsoever disease he had. Now, that may be in parentheses in your Bible because it may be a, a scribal insertion not to tell us that the troubling of the water was a real thing, but to tell us that in their minds they believed it to be that. And a certain man was there, verse 5, which had an infirmity of thirty and eight years. And Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had now been there for a long case. And he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. Uh, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool where I am. 
and coming another and step it down. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up the bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the Sabbath day was the same day. Verse 9. And the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Are you kidding me? A man who hasn't taken a step, I assume, in 38 years has just been healed by the Lord of the Sabbath. And what did they have to say to him? Congratulations. I'm thrilled that you... You know it's not lawful to take up your bed on the Sabbath day. A little bit of insight as to why Jesus may have been angered and grieved. What's the overriding lesson in this? It was very... It, But it was not lawful to them. For their for they had their own law. The overriding lesson in this comes down to something of this effect. It is actually easier to be a Christian Christ's way, that's possessive, Christ's way than it would have been to be a Jew in the Jews or the Pharisees' way. Because they had no mercy and they had within them no love. And so they looked at the Sabbath as a day that everyone had to fall in goose step to what they did and couldn't go against it. But Jesus said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, one thing to put in your margin, we don't probably don't even have this whole minute. Put in your margin Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. You'll be familiar with that one. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly. Did I just skip something? Somebody else quote it. You're better than me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in your heart, and you shall find rest in your souls. Here it is. For my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. Now, I've looked at that so many times and thought, well, I mean, living for Christ is certainly the best thing, but it may not be the easiest thing. It was a whole lot easier than living underneath these Pharisaical Jews. His burden was so much lighter than theirs. And that's what he offered. Any questions, comments, additions? I take subtractions too. Alrighty. Thank you for your attention.